Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Make sure you have your Bibles open. You need to be following along with your uh, eyes on the uh, page. Uh, we're going to, uh, I've called the sermon Resurrection Then. Uh, that's the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus and the future. That's us. We're going to be resurrected. And uh, so it's a very unusual chapter, and uh, it's totally different than anything so far through the Corinthian um, uh, through the Corinthian letter that Paul sent uh, to is sending, he's, he's sending it, he will, he did send it, it's kind of past, uh, to uh, the church in Corinth where he had taught for 18 months. Uh, we're going to do the first 11 verses, but I'm going to start with this verse we'll start with next week, which is verse 12. I put it on the screen in the New Living Translation, and it reads this way. But tell me this, Paul says. Since we, the apostles, preach that Christ, that's the Messiah, who is Jesus, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there'll be no resurrection of the dead? Now, I think they've got the grammar just right in that, and, but you need to know something to understand why Paul is saying what he's saying and what is happening. Remember, Corinth is near Athens. Athens was the seat of, uh, of oh, Euripides, Seneca, Picatus, Plato, all of these types of things, Stoicism. And in their worldview, when you die, you're free of your body. That's the idea. They're looking forward to death because this body is a terrible thing. Uh, one of those that I quoted here that I said, or this is a quote, the body is a tomb. I'm a poor soul shackled to a corpse. And that was the main thinking about our human bodies in the Corinthian area and all of that area. And some of it had sunk back into the church after Jesus resurrected from the dead. There's no doubt about that after he resurrected from the dead, to think about their own lives after they die. You see, the Christian view of the body is exactly opposite of that. The Christian view of the body is that it's th these bodies are God. Th this is God's body. He gave me this body. A and we're to take care of our bodies. And it's not Pastor Carl telling everybody they should ride a bicycle, although you should, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but we should take care of our bodies because our bodies were given to us by God. And we've already studied it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, which reads, do you not know, Paul says, that means you know this, don't you? That your bodies, that's our bodies, are temples of God, the Holy Spirit, who is in us, who we have received from God, and then it says you're not your own. It's a picture of the cross, you see. You were bought at a price. That's the cross. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So our bodies are good. And our bodies, after we die, we're going to be raised from the dead. And some in Corinth were saying, well, we're not so sure about that anymore. So the purpose of 1 Corinthians 15 is not to prove that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, he did. The purpose of 1 Corinthians 15 is to reaffirm the resurrection of Jesus in his human 
body and to encourage Christians about the new amazing bodies we will all have in eternity. Therefore, what we're about to study is the oldest writing from Paul outlining the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus who's the Messiah. If Jesus did not literally bodily rise from the dead, then Christianity is completely false. It's nothing but a deceptive lie. Take away the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and we have nothing worth believing in. 1 Corinthians 15 contains what most scholars believe to be the earliest creed of Christianity. And Paul uses this creed to remind the Corinthians about what they have already believed regarding Jesus' resurrection. So Paul affirms the historic reality of Jesus' resurrection. He cites eyewitness testimony. He mentions his personal encounter with Jesus. And Paul then demonstrates how Jesus' resurrection assures us of our resurrection and how his resurrection should keep us on the edge of our seats awaiting the second coming of Jesus or the rapture of the church as we obtain our eternal bodies. Now, Paul makes it clear that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are what he calls a pitiful group of very deceived people. We won't get to the verses this morning about our new bodies. Uh, That'll be next week's sermon. But it is in this chapter that we learn exactly what our new bodies will look like when death has been completely defeated. And I like to say, and you'll understand this way better next week, that our new bodies will be the same as our old bodies but different. Now, many believers are fuzzy about what happens when we die, and I hope that next week's message will succeed in making that very clear so we are all looking forward with great anticipation to our transition from these temporary, weak bodies we now have to the new eternal bodies we will have. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters... Paul says, I want to remind you, you already know this, but I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that I preached to you for 18 months in the city of Corinth, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, they believed and they were saved, verse 2, and by this gospel, this good news, you are saved. Now, let me just, I want to do something here with the grammar that's important. Uh, Many of you understand this, but some don't. Verse 2, by this gospel, this good news about Jesus, it really reads this way, you are being saved. So here's how it works. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we repent of our sins and we believe Jesus was risen from the dead, and we ask him to come into our lives, we, are, we become saved. Uh, that's called justification, and it's, it's a, a, a unique way of saying it. It's just as if we had never sinned. So your sins have been completely forgiving. But the grammar says that when you're saved, you are being saved. What's that mean? Well, that's called sanctification. That's growth. And you see, here's the reality. When you become a Christian... Everybody 
proceeds in a little different way. Because if you've never been to church, you don't know anything about church, you become a Christian, and at first you can't tell a lot of difference uh, in your life, or others can't. But then as you are discipled and learn more, uh, then you really change. If you've been in church for a long time, and there's been a lot of people like that, and maybe somebody here even today, you've been to church a lot, but you've never really given your life to Jesus, when you get saved, you already know all kinds of things, and your life tends to change in a very uh, large way as you're being discipled. And I use the phrase, as you're being discipled, on purpose, because we are given the Great Commission. Now, listen to this carefully. The Great Commission isn't to go out and get people to accept Christ. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission, it says we're to go out into all the world and disciple those. Now, that means, of course, you have to tell them the gospel, the good news about Jesus, but it says that our job, our calling by God, our uh, task that he's given us is to disciple those who we lead to Christ, disciple others, to teach them the things that Jesus taught. And so Paul has done that for a long time in Corinth, and that's why he's starting this way, he says, you know, I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel, you're being saved, being sanctified, your life is changing. And then there's a conditional clause here, which is interesting. If you hold firmly, firmly to the word I preached to you, in other words, to what I told you, otherwise you believed in vain. Now, for the, from the outset, Paul is affirming the authenticity of the faith of those in Corinth. What Paul is saying here is that they are certainly saved as long as the gospel they believe in is true. And so here's the gospel, verse 3. This is this creed. For what I preach or what I receive, Paul says. Paul received this. He didn't make it up on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he learned it from Jesus. So he says, for what I received, I passed on to you, that's the Great Commission, as of first importance. So here's the gospel. That Christ, the Messiah, that's Jesus, died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the cross. He was on the cross, he died, he was buried in a tomb, and he rose from the dead bodily. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's the word for Peter. And that's, I have to stop there just for a sec. He appeared to Peter. Peter had denied him three times. We've talked a lot about forgiveness lately in some of the sermons. What a incredible picture of forgiveness. Salvation alone is an incredible picture of forgiveness. We don't deserve salvation, and yet that's the, the grace, we're saved by grace. And now here's Peter who has denied Jesus three times, and Jesus goes to him personally, a, sort of a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him, and we see in the book of John, right at the end of the book of John, the, past, the, 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 the John the apostle wrote, the first gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so we, we see this where he goes to Peter and he forgives him. You know, he takes him through a little process, but he forgives him. 
It's so wonderful to see that how can we not forgive others who do us wrong when Jesus forgave Peter? And then after that, he went to the 12, that's all of the the apostles. And after that, verse 6, he appeared to more than, not just 500, but more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died, fallen asleep as a euphemism uh, for death. So more than, in other words, there are more than 500 people that saw Jesus uh, in a, all at once, and uh, you could check it out. You can go and meet with them and find out about what really happened. And then verse 7, then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother, who definitely didn't believe in him, and he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul says, also as to one abnormally born. Now, I want you to at least try to keep that in your mind because it comes in at the very end of the sermon. Paul says he was one who was abnormally born. Very important phrase. So, when Paul says, according to the Scriptures, he probably wasn't thinking of specific proof text, although there are many, but he was thinking of how Jesus completed the Old Testament story. There are many texts that we could turn to. For instance, Isaiah 52 and 53, two large chapters in the Old Testament. If we put Jesus' name in the text of Isaiah, it's a messianic passage, and if we put Jesus' name in the text of Isaiah, it would not be any more helpful than just reading the text as it is. It is obvious Isaiah is referring to no one else but Jesus 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, just two verses only out of the two large chapters, Isaiah 53, 5, and 6. It says, but he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. They hadn't even invented crucifixion yet. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's God has laid on Jesus, the iniquity, that's the word for sin, of us all. Amazing verses. Surely that describes what happened to Jesus, and it's only because of his death on the cross that our sins are forgiven. Now, you might also notice that in this description of the gospel, in our passage, Paul does not try to prove the death of Jesus because no one disputed the fact that he died. I mean, the Romans knew how to execute someone. There were no hidden medicines, And Jesus was not eaten by dogs in a shallow grave, as a certain liberal theologian suggests. And the bodies were confirmed dead by those who are experts in confirming death when they were removing them from the cross. So Jesus died, historical fact, no dispute. Even in the last generation, there were skeptics who declared uh, Jesus' resurrection was only a spiritual resurrection. Just a generation ago, there were a lot of so-called theologians that said it was just a spiritual 
resurrection. Now, the Greek word for resurrection literally means the standing up of a corpse. That's what it means, the standing up of a corpse. And, uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis, answering these skeptics, uh, had a question. What position does the spirit take when it stands up? <laughs> so there was no need for Paul to supply an eyewitness account of the death of Jesus. But Paul did supply ample eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. So who were the eyewitnesses? Well, the first one I've already mentioned was the apostle Peter, who was still very much alive at this time and preaching the same gospel as Paul. And then the 12 are mentioned. Uh, the, this is a reference to the original uh, apostles. Do you know that there's a lot of uh, subtle humor in the Bible? I think uh, Jesus laughed a lot with the disciples. I think they had a great time together. I think he had a great sense of humor. And in Luke chapter 24, I put this on the screen. I love this story. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead the disciples had no expectation that he would rise from the dead. They saw him on the cross. They knew about the tomb, that he borrowed tomb he was put in, and all the things they do to put a person in the tomb alone. If he were, were alive, that would kill him. And uh, so there was no possibility. They were not thinking that he was rising from the dead, even though he told them over and over again. So in Luke 24, 36, it says this. While they were still talking, the disciples are all together, about all of this that happened, the cross, all of that. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And then it says, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And then Jesus said, and listen, this is just me, so it's probably, I'm not a great theologian, it's probably wrong, but I think that he was trying to just suppress a smile. Maybe just his lips were just a little bit. And he says to them, he didn't say it this way. Why are you troubled and why did doubts rise in your minds? No, no, I don't, I don't believe that for a moment. He said to them, why are you troubled? And I'm, He's trying not to laugh. Why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then it says, this is very interesting, when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. So he had, he has, that's his, his human body. And while they still did not believe, why didn't they? Because of joy and amazement. Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. What does that really mean? Joy and amazement. Joy, they wanted to believe it. They were absolutely blown away. I mean, this had never happened before. They saw what happened to him. He was unrecognizable when they took him off the cross. And they're hoping it's true. And so Jesus said, do you have something to eat? <laughs> and they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Now, I just want you to notice, broiled, not fried. <laughs> this is God's body. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that stuff. 
He says, so everything must be fulfilled that's written in the law of Moses, the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the 12 prophets at the end, Isaiah, and the Psalms. And then, this is awesome, he opened their minds. This is a supernatural thing that he did. They opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, period. Isn't that great? That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He opens our minds so we can understand the Scriptures. And he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, which they knew well. And then he says, this is what is written. The Christ, the Messiah, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to every ethnic group in the world, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he says to them, you are witnesses of these things. What a meeting to be had. Jesus spent considerable time in his resurrected body, proving the reality of his resurrection. In the book of Acts, written by Luke, of course, who wrote the gospel, we read these words. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, that's the cross, he presented himself to them, that's the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. A kingdom has a king. Jesus is the king. The kingdom of God is Jesus' reign in our lives on this earth. You see, they weren't imagining things. These appearances were not dreams or figments of their imaginations. Jesus rose from the grave. And here's another important point in verse 3 of our text. It says that Christ died for our sins. Let's just reason for a minute. minute. It is clear reasoning that a sinful person cannot die and forgive the sins of another sinful person. And that was completely understood by Paul's first audience, especially the religious leaders. The religious leaders were out to kill Jesus because... Jesus had said that he forgave a person's sins. Do you remember the story? Jesus is in a house. It's packed. People are packed around the doors and the windows. There's no way to get in. These men bring their friend on sort of a stretcher type thing because they wanted Jesus to me. He was paralyzed. They wanted Jesus to help him. They couldn't get in, so they went up the side stairs as was normal in a house at that time. They cleared a hole, and they lowered this guy down right in front of Jesus, and he asked a question. He said, what is easier, to say your sins are to forgive or to take up your mat and walk? And uh, the Pharisees especially were sitting there just on the edge of their seats. They were so angry. They were trying to figure out what was going on here. And then Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And the guy got up and left. And and, And from their point of view, he was committing blasphemy by claiming to be God. Because as the religious leaders pointed out rather strongly, only God can forgive sins. So Jesus was the sinless Messiah who was crucified and rose from the grave and is alive again. 
Now, the early church recognized many verses in the Psalms and prophets as referring to the resurrection and therefore uh, to what would happen to Jesus. They, that's what it meant when he said that he gave them the ability to understand these things. For instance, Psalms 16, 9, and 10, the early church used this a lot. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. Or Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us that we may live in his presence. And the early church saw those things as pre-signs of what did happen to Jesus. Jesus was placed in a tomb, but he rose from the dead, and the tomb was verifiably empty, verifiably empty. There's an incident in Jesus' life recorded in Matthew chapter 12. It reads this way. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. What they're saying is, prove to us that you're the Messiah. Prove to us that you're God. Prove it. Well, he had already raised people from the dead. He had already done, you know, made people walk, blind people see. I mean, my goodness, how much proof do they need? But Jesus was not smiling when he answered them. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. That, that insulted them pretty good. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He used the phrase son of man, which further goaded them because they knew when he used the phrase son of man out of the book of Daniel that he was claiming to be deity, the Messiah. So Jonah, I love to teach the book of Jonah, Verse 17 of chapter 1 reads, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and then he was spit out in front of the Ninevites. And so Jesus, Jonah came out of the fish that God made, and his rising out of that fish in the third day uh, caused the Ninevites to repent and receive uh, God's forgiveness. It's an amazing story, and you all know it, I'm sure. Well, Jesus rose on the third day. According to the way the Jews reckon time, any part of a day is the same as a whole day. Therefore, Jesus was in the tomb for the same time Jonah was in the fish, and as the Ninevites got saved and Jonah comes out of the fish, Jesus came out of the grave, and people from then on all over the world, including hopefully all of us here, have been saved because of that. The only sign these religious leaders would receive would be Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If they didn't believe that, then they wouldn't believe. But they should have believed because of what they read in their Bibles. And isn't it the same for us today? That's why the Bible is attacked so often on so many TV programs and in widely distributed magazines and novels and books and movies. 
If we can get rid of the Bible, then we can believe whatever we want. But then Paul adds to the overwhelming evidence of the eyewitness testimony of 500-plus people seeing Jesus at one time, and certainly they were not seeing some kind of a mass hallucination or mirage or vision. Paul tells us that some of them have already died, but most are still alive, and I'm sure it would not have been hard to find one or two to ask about the reality of that event. The next witness for Paul was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, we know that is who Paul is referring to because he also refers to the apostles in the same sentence, and among the apostles there were two other James. James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. James, Jesus' half-brother, had clearly not believed in Jesus as Messiah before the resurrection. James not only became a believer, but a major leader in the early church in Jerusalem. It would have been easy to find James and question him about the reality of his brother, or half-brother, Jesus, bodily rising from the dead. James actually wrote a book about it. Now, the final witness was Paul himself. It is very interesting how he describes his experience recorded in the book of Acts, especially in chapter 9. His conversion on the way to Damascus is so dramatic that even in our day, it is not unusual to hear a non-religious person Talk about a Damascus Road experience. Tom Wright, a commentator, describing what happened to Paul, points out that Paul uses almost shocking language that would describe a cesarean birth in which a baby is violently ripped from the womb before it was ready, blinking in shock at the sudden light and scarcely able to breathe in this new world. That's what the phrase, I mentioned it just a moment ago, to remember, as to one abnormally born, is talking about. Paul describes himself that way. It is actually a phrase that describes a miscarriage or a cesarean birth or even an abortion. It is thought that some in Corinth were using this phrase to disparage Paul, so he uses it of himself. Paul is describing the dramatic, life-changing event that was his conversion on the Damascus Road that day. And maybe that is what he was thinking when he tells us that Christian conversion is like being recreated. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you have become a Christian, you are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're no longer in, uh, you're no longer controlled by your sinful nature. You now have the ability not to obey your sinful natures anymore. Uh, you have a new nature now because you have the Holy Spirit, and you're now free and you're able to live a life of freedom from the power of sin. Uh, Tom Wright wrote these words. Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to 
all those things, but at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world, an event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will, thank God, never be the same again either. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. When we become a Christian, we are a new creation. We have a new ability. We can forgive people. We can, uh, we can have joy in the midst of sorrowful happenings. We can continue on when uh, things, uh, circumstances around us are devastating. We can continue on because of the coming resurrection of our bodies after we die. Now, just a thought. Do we really believe that Paul and the others could make these statements so soon after Jesus was murdered on the cross and not be investigated by the skeptics? Is it not significant that there are no books, no scrolls, or reports in the historical record saying that this didn't happen, except for the one in our Bibles? There's one in our Bibles? Yes, there is. There's one in our Bibles. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 28. And it says this. When the chief priests have met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you well, we were asleep. If, if they fell asleep on duty, they, they'd be executed in that day. So they're glad to get this money. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. Now, if the tomb wasn't empty, and if there was even a hint of a lie in the apostles' claims, then I assure you the Jewish establishment and the Roman government would have tracked down the liars and exposed the fake story of the resurrection. There is no chance that this was not an historical event. The challenge is, how do we respond to it? That's the challenge. Verse 9. Paul's talking about himself now. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a religious terrorist. He was uh, rejoicing when Stephen was stoned to death. He was throwing Christians in jail. Christians were dying because of Paul's zealousness against the Christians. He hated the Christians. He believed they were all wrong and they were misinterpreting Scripture. And he was a Pharisee. He knew Scripture. He knew it by heart. He really knew what he was talking about. And so now you can just, just imagine him, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. Now, I particularly like what Paul calls the church, the church of God. The head of the church is Jesus himself. The church is God's instrument to shape us in such a way as to cause those we work with and play with and study with to ask us about the hope 
that is within us. The Apostle Paul was one of the most educated and sharpest and evilest man ever to be converted. Yet he didn't think he deserved to be part of the church, but we accept all people without condemnation, even those who were formerly persecutors of the saints of God. But look at what he says now. This is, this is worth thinking about for a while. And uh, Grace, grace, grace. It's all about grace. Christianity is all about grace. Uh, undeserved favor. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, it's not, you could say that in a way that's sort of just sort of, well, it's just, I'm just who I am. No, that's not the idea. No, no, he's become something significant for God. He says, but it's the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Paul's life was changed. If Paul's life was changed, how can somebody say, I became a Christian, but I didn't change anything? I doubt if you became a Christian. If you did, maybe you did and you just don't understand. So maybe it's our fault we're not discipling you. But Paul says, no, 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 no. I worked harder than all of them. Uh, he's not saying he worked, did more than all of the other apostles. Uh, he, he's saying, I worked harder than any one of them individually. Yet it wasn't me, he says, but the grace of God was with me. This is an incredible verse. The Message Bible gets it just right. But because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am, and I'm not about to let this grace go to waste. Haven't I worked hard trying to do more than any of the others? Even then, my work didn't amount to all that much. It was God giving me the work to do, God giving me the energy to do it. We are the church. Now, someone's thinking, I've been coming here for a little while. You say that way too much. We are the church. Therefore, we must act like it. We can act like it. God doesn't ask us to do anything other than what he has planned for our lives. Wherever we find, wherever you find yourself when you're saved... Stay there and be who you are becoming in Christ. Uh, you might think you're small potatoes in the whole scheme of things. But to receive God's blessing, all he asks is that we be faithful right where he finds us. He'll take care of everything else. Then in the day of final judgment, when rewards are handed out, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and receive your reward. And it won't look like a winner's circle because every single faithful Christian fills in the complete picture of God's will, whether we are just an eye in the body or a small toe or a big head or a long arm or a smiling mouth. Then the puzzle will be complete. So whether we enter the world and we all enter the world as the church scattered, we're still a church when we leave here, we're to have an impact on the culture. And our message doesn't change. Look at verse 11, the last verse. Whether then it was I, he says, or they. This is what we preach. Whether it was I or the other apostles, this is what we preach. And this is what you, Corinthians, believed and are saved. 
believing in the resurrected Messiah for our eternal destiny and present abilities changes our lives as we daily take up our cross and joyfully follow Jesus now and forever. So Paul demonstrates in all his teachings that the Hebrew Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi are one story culminating in the resurrection of Messiah Jesus on the way to the new heavens and the new earth as we all are resurrected to obtain new bodies that are the same as our present bodies but different. I'll end with a quote from Dr. Gordon Fee. He writes this. Such conviction leads also to the proclamation of the gospel itself. The good news that God loves fallen, broken human beings, and he has made provision through Christ's death and resurrection to overcome their alienation so that they too may know divine forgiveness and have a sure hope for the future. This, it would seem, is the lasting significance of this argument and its content for today. So if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you're watching online and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus, there's a sort of a formula in the Bible that talks about resurrection. It's part of getting saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, you're saying, Lord Jesus, take over my life, and you believe in your heart, you really believe it, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. What a great word. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Remember, we talked about that, saved. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are continually being saved and changed forever. Let's bow our heads for a moment and just think about that. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and doesn't have a relationship with you, I so pray that they will just right now in their minds call out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I do believe that you went to the cross, that you rose from the dead, that you're God, and that my sins are forgiven. I turn from my sins. I repent. I don't want to live the way I live anymore. I want to live for you. And if you say a prayer that's anything like that at all and say, please save me, then you will be saved and you'll know it. And as you grow, as you learn more about the Word of God and as you become part of the church at the local level, you'll change in ways and do ministry that you never would have imagined that you could ever have done before. So I pray, Father, for anyone that is in that circumstance or is really having a lot of struggle because of all the difficulties of the world today, knowing that there is true hope. It's true hope. And we'll all be raised from the dead and we'll spend eternity with the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.